Would you stand or remain standing as we hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22? Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the, Christ, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Still very close, Lance. You're you're in the you're in the spit zone. They were good, yeah. So I I'm in mourning, as you might expect. I'm I left my sackcloth and ashes at home, but as a Philadelphia Phillies fan, last night at 11 o'clock was hurtful. So I'll, I'm going to try to get through this. I'm going to do my best. I I showed up, so I feel like I'm already above the. I'm already meeting minimum, minimum requirements. Um, yeah, just everybody is welcome to stay after. We're going to convert these tables. They convert into benches, or these t- benches convert into tables, so we'll do that after. Um, and we'll eat right in here within 15 or 20 minutes after. So just know you're welcome to stay and eat, eat with us. And it's an important thing for us to do, especially after the sermon that we're about to, to think about here. So let's pray together, and then we'll, then we'll get into it. Lord, who caused all of the scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us to hear them, to read, mark, and learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, this is an appropriate text for this Sunday. I did not plan this with election day on Tuesday, but I saw an uh, an article in the New York Times yesterday, the title of which was Family Ties, Political Divisions. And it told the story of one family that has three different political groups in the same house. Um, And one of the the first line in in the article was, in this family household, even the male is divided. This picture of this, like, stacks of different political literature on the, on the table that's divided into who's belongs to who. 
right? We live in a divided and much polarized country as we've talked about a lot in the past five years, six years. We live in divided cities. We live in divided states. We live in divided households and divided schools, right? And this division is so normalized for us. Like we're, we become almost like it's like we're accepting it as normal to have warring factions of people on different ends of different spectrums sort of lobbying arguments and anger and angst at one another. We live in our own like echo chambers where we have our own facts and our own news sources and our own this and our own that over against those people, the bad people. We have our own heroes. We have talk, legitimate, serious journalism being written about civil war in the United States. <laughs> We've become resigned and accustomed to this. And the church, churches, are not immune to this division. In fact, I think for many of us, maybe many of you, the church is or has become a primary place or even source of division in your life. And what's worse is that the division inside of churches is always cloaked in this sort of... Um, condescending, self-righteous, God-on-our-side divisiveness, right? Um, because we all feel like we're doing the work of the Lord to divide in such a way that we are doing. The weight and the seriousness of, of the Lord's work. Right? To the point where we have these groups of people, like just the, the, um, the topic of race. You have camps divided over, you have racially divided groups. Then you have racially, you have divided groups about talking about how you talk about the division about race, and then you have divided groups over how you talk about how you talk about dividing over race, and you, you have all of these divisions inside of the church, and we've, de we've descended into this sort of ethos of tribalism, where everything's absolute, where it's black and white, and the battle lines are always drawn. I don't know if you feel that, but I feel that. I feel that as a pastor. I feel that as a friend of many of you and many people in, over the past five or six years, and so today's text is especially poignant and necessary for us, because Christianity is irreducibly social, right? Being a Christian is not like being in an indie band or an individual sport or playing solitaire on your computer. It's a game that requires a game. It's a religion. It's an ethos that requires connection to other people. We're talking about what it means to be in Christ, according to Paul in Ephesians these last six or eight weeks. And being in Christ consists in a particular kind of relationship with other people who are also in, in Christ. God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is not less than a bunch of individuals together, but it is much, much more than just a collection of individuals who believe the same thing. And so today I want to focus not on division out there. You, you, you have plenty of that. You see plenty of that. You know plenty of that. Not division out there, but division in here. And what I want you to hear today is that every week we've had a being in Christ means statement. Today's statement is being in Christ means cultivating resistance to division. Being in Christ means cultivating resistance to division. So I want to do two things first. I want to show you from Paul the conditions of division, the cure for division, and then we'll look at how we might cultivate resistance to that, especially with one another here in this room, as well as in our lives as Christians. So if you have your Bible, it might be up there. I think it's up there, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says this, Therefore, remember that you at one time, you Gentiles, he's writing to primarily Gentile 
Christians, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, separated, divided, alienated. These are strong words from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The Bible traces the history of the Jewish people who were set aside, called by God, to be holy before him. And the law made these distinctions about the Jewish people. They were set aside. That's what holy means. Set aside, set apart. And they were distinct in all of these ways. They had the Torah, the promises of God, the presence of God, the temple of God, the law of God, the word of God. They had all these things that set them apart. And chief among them for, Jew, for Jews to set them apart in summarizing, encapsulating all of that was this practice of circumcision. There was a way of setting them apart. It, when, when you read circumcision in the Bible, it's not just a single act. It's a way of representing, talking about, connecting to all of the distinctions that Jewish people had, setting them apart from the rest of the world. And the Gentiles, by definition, were excluded because they didn't have this distinction. And this distinction, the law of God that was given to the Jews for thousands of years, the distinction began to breed division. Right? The distinction began to breed division. And it's hard, I think, and many of the commentators and books I read this week and have studied, it's hard for us to understand or appreciate the division and the divide between Gentiles and Jews, which was 100% absolute. To be a Jew in that time was all-inclusive. It was your race, it was your culture, it was your religion, it was your nationalism, it was all of these things. To be a Jew, very much against. There's nothing in our context, nothing in your experience that can even begin to come close to the division between Jews and Gentiles. Not race, not politics, not Islam versus Christianity, not UNC versus Duke, right? There's nothing. I know, it's close, Jim. I hear you. I hear you. Not close. <laughs> okay, this is what, I just want you to hear this, and I'm going to read the whole thing. I have a couple of longer quotes today, so bear with me, but this is uh, William Barclay says, the Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. That's what Jews would say. God, they said, loves only Israel out of all the nations that he made, and it was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish person would be carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was equivalent to death. Like you're getting the picture of the division between these two groups was absolute. The division itself became a way of life for Jews, to stand over against the life of Gentiles. And the posture that this took on was a posture of hatred and contempt and condemnation. Condescension, condensation. Condescension, although maybe there was con whatever the other word is. I'm not going to try to say it again. Um, they were, Jews were repulsed by Gentiles. It's absolute divide. And what's so hard and sad about that is that when God chose to put his mark and seal on the Gentiles, this begins in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. You remember this? He selects Abraham, and he says, I'm going to do this for you, and this for you, and this for you, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The purpose of the distinction set on Jews was not to set them over against the Gentiles, but so that through them, the goodness of God could go out to those other Gentiles. But instead, the Jews took those distinctions, and they built walls. 
like literal walls, right? In the temple, there was walls. Gentiles cannot go past this point. Walls, fences, they had this just whole way of life of hatred and contempt. You can even see it here in the text at the very first. It said, remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision. Not just a fact, but it's like those uncircumcised people, right? You know how we do this with our, with our distinctions. Those fill-in-the-blank people, the way we call and label one another. The Jews had begun to boast and brag about their holiness, their distinctiveness, and it created this division, and they missed the whole point of being set apart. And for their salvation, they relied on their distinctions. Circumcision in, uncircumcision out. God loves the circumcised, he hates the uncircumcised. Distinction, the distinction of the Jews, became division when they connected it to what was required for salvation. We see this all the way in Acts 15. There's this big argument. In Acts 15, all the people come down to Jerusalem and they're going to they're gonna argue. And what are they arguing over? Acts 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The distinctions of Judaism became a way to exclude other people from salvation. Salvation required you to become like the Jews. We are not unfamiliar with this way of thinking. Distinctions, which are not bad, become division when we connect our specific distinctions with salvation. Our distinctions become a very important way of building walls and fences, of saying who's in and who's out. We're not going to say that, of course, right? It's going to be subtle behind the scenes with our attitudes and our tribes and our postures and our key language. But we build our fences to keep the bad out. We build our walls to separate between us and the bad people over there, whatever the bad people are, depending on our particular distinctions. And being right begins to take precedence over everything else. I mean, distinction is an important thing for us in, in, in our identities. We know this. We want to identify ourselves as the person that drives X car, the person that goes to this church and not to that church over there, right? And it's dis these distinctions that begin, begin to breed division, which is what had happened. And this is where we find ourselves in the church in America today. Communities form. They form around affinities. That's good. That's not bad. And the affinities, the distinctions of that group become ways to keep other people out. It's easy to see this in theology. We, we build longer and longer theological statements to keep out the, those that we disagree with. We do it in practice, when, where, how we meet. We orient around racial boundaries. We form as an affinity group, but as we form as an affinity group, we begin to build walls to keep people that don't have that affinity away from us. We do this with preferences and political leanings. And what's interesting, one, uh, one author says, while the New Testament talks often about church, it is surprisingly silent about many of the matters that we associate with church structure and life. There's no mention of architecture and pulpits and length of sermons or sermons at all, Rules for Sunday school or anything else. Little is said about the style of music, the order of worship, the time of gathering. There's no Bibles, denominations, camps, pastors, conferences, board member meetings. All the things that we think are so important, there's very little mention of them in the Bible 
at all. And yet those are the things that often become primary in defining our identities over against other people. Defining what we are not, right? Like we are Protestants. Protestants. Like our entire stream of the church is defined around not being Catholic. That's pretty radical, right? Like that's our identity. Like one of the larger conferences in evangelicalism last year had a conference that, that was titled, We Are Protestant, which is, is fine, but the underneath that is this reality that we're defining ourselves over against other people. We have our little special words, right? They're not gospel-centered enough. They're too progressive. The preaching's not deep enough. They don't do this kind of preaching. Or what we don't do, we don't vote for that person. We don't drink that beverage. We don't associate with those kinds of people. We could spend a lot of time here. I'm just let you use your own mind to think through these. What are these for you? The theology of baptism and the end times and women in leadership, the practicalities of music and the songs that we sing and how we organize our liturgy and what we do and don't allow in our worship service, how we practice the Lord's Supper. There are many other Christians who would come in here and refuse to practice the Lord's Supper with us because we don't do it the right way. Or our preaching is not the right style. Arguments in the Anglican church over not only whether we should use a prayer book, but which one we should use. What year? Should it be 1979 or the new one? How dare you? Right? These are the things that begin to define who we are, who and how, and where money gets spent. Denominationalism. I left this line blank because I could probably talk about it for a while. I actually think denominations are helpful, but one of the things that we do with denominations is we use them as weapons to exclude other Christians. We have all these preferences, cultural preferences. Where so-and-so went to seminary can be a very exclusive and divisive thing. These distinctions are all fine until they create division because of how we think about them and use them. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, For God said, Let light shine out of the darkness, and it has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel, the good news of the death of Christ. And then Paul says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, in vessels, Vessels of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And Dallas Willard says, Our various groups have become over time nearly 100% vessel. The, the, the circumstances of our lives, the human elements. He says, What we seem to regard as essential and what we devote almost all our attention and effort to has to do with the human distinctions that we have attached to ourselves who are brought up in a certain way. You know this. (laughs) The way you were brought up, things you have affinity with, you love those things. And you love the people who love those things. And because these distinctions are dear to us, Willard says, we mistake them for the treasure of the real presence of Jesus Christ in our midst. And we spend most of our time concerned with the distinctions of our group, even trying to urge them upon others as essential to salvation, or at least what might be best for them. No wonder we are distracted from the path of spiritual formation. 
You see, distinctions are not unimportant, but when we raise them to the level of being part of salvation, we miss the point. Standing on these things as essential, these distinctions as essential, is what produces mean and angry Christians. Thousand Lord. So I want to encourage you to think about this in your own life. The easy ones are theology. It's objective out there. The practical ones. But it's things like, what makes you suspicious of others? If you met me for the first time, I said, hey, I'm Josh. And I said, I went to such and such a seminary. You'd be like, ooh. What would someone have to say for you to instantly be suspicious of their salvation? Is it where they went to school? Is it the church denomination that they're a part of? Is it a certain practice that they have? What is it? What topics in this room, when you talk to people, what topics do you avoid? I want to make sure I don't talk to Gary about this topic. You never know what might happen. He's... You're welcome. <laughs> what, what would cause you to leave a church? What's, what things would you have to find out or learn? What are your sacred cows? What groups of people out there, other Christians, do you suspect might not be saved because of what they do or don't teach or believe? What are the specific distinctions that are important to you that probably lead to division between you and other Christians? Those are the conditions of division. And then Paul says this. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Division is past, Paul says. It's in the past. You used to be divided. And remember, he's talking about the most significant and absolute division that, ex that could possibly exist between Jews and Gentiles. Created by God, those distinctions. And he's saying, even that distinction is not big enough to keep you away from Jesus. The distinction is past. Something else is present. The blood of Jesus has brought you near. The defining factor of being saved is no longer any distinction at all, but it's the death of Jesus. The death and blood of Jesus. Verse 15, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. Note these laws and commandments, these distinctions, they're not unimportant or irrelevant. They're just of no effect for what? They're of no effect for salvation. They don't go away. They don't disappear. Jews don't cease to become Jews. Jews still practice circumcision. Gentiles still practice uncircumcision. But those things have no effect on salvation. Paul says in Galatians, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Those distinctions we hold so dear, Paul says, they're not effective for salvation. Because there's only one condition and cause of salvation, and that's the death of Jesus. Being in Christ is bounded, connected to only one thing, the blood and death of Jesus. Not circumcision, not law, not geography, not baptism, not political affiliation or dress code or food code or Sabbath practice, not theological distinctions or interpretive grids, not miracles or service times or economic station, no secret handshakes. There's only one secret handshake for Christians, and it's all the same for every Christian, and that's the death and blood of Jesus. 
It doesn't remove the distinction, but it removes its power to divide us. Do you see what this means for us? If there's no division, then we should have unity with one another. This recognition that we're playing for the same team. If you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, we're both in Christ. Together. We have peace with Jesus means we have peace with one another. This is, without, without joking this time, this is, Gary and I have had a lot of these conversations. Gary and I differ on a lot of practical things. We differ on theological things. We differ on philosophical things. We differ on emphasis things. We have different backgrounds and histories. Gary and I are very different. In many churches, Gary and I would not be able to coexist. Right, Gary? But we do because of this, because of the blood of Jesus. Breaks down. The, the blood of Christ is the great equalizer, breaking down these walls of race and gender and politics and theology and philosophy and practice and ethnicity and nationalism. A single identity in the blood of Jesus. This is why Paul says in Colossians 3, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. It doesn't do away with those things. It just makes them powerless to divide us. One body. One author says, It is the heart and passion of Jesus Christ for his church to transcend the cultural and economic barriers that separate and divide. Jesus longs for his church to overcome the barriers of racism and nationalism and economic pride, and to embody in a practical way what he created it to be, an attractive yet countercultural family of people very different from one another who love each other deeply and display the presence of God who is near. There's parts of your distinctiveness as a Christian that are rightly criticized by others because you're wrong. Do you know that? And there are ways that you rightly criticize other people's distinctions because they're wrong. And Jesus says, Paul says, it doesn't have power to divide us. Jesus tore down the wall. This is not something that we have to achieve. Jesus did it. All of the walls that we rebuild are just little walls that can be easily knocked over because Jesus actually tore down the real walls. One body in Christ. Now, just the caveat, I'm dropping it in. I want to say this. This is not to say that distinctions are unimportant or useless. This is not to argue for some kind of doctrinal minimalism or practical minimalism where nothing else matters. If you've been at Redeemer for more than five minutes, you know we care deeply about theology. We care deeply and think hard about secondary and tertiary and whatever comes after that. We care deeply about the way that we do worship and we think it matters. We care about these things a lot. Not all errors are equally bad. Some errors are more destructive than others. Denominations are not bad. Distinctions are important things. God made us diverse. Diversity in the kingdom of God is essential and important. It's when we orient those things around salvation that we give them back their power to divide us. Paul finishes with these three beautiful metaphors. They're like concentric circles. And I wish I had time for all of them, but I just want to point them out to you. Right? The, the conditions of division exist. Jesus cured that by tearing down the walls. He tore them down. He made us one. He made one man out of the two. Then he says this, verse 19. So then, or this is the so that. 
So then, you Gentiles that used to be separated, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints. It's a kingdom metaphor. One nation, one country, one group of citizens. We share the national identity of Jesus as our primary national identity. That's kingdom. You're in the same country. Says, but not only that, not only are you fellow countrymen, but you are also members of the household of God. You don't just live in the same country. You live in the same house with one another. Your siblings, brothers and sisters with one another across those distinctions. Can you imagine a Jew hearing this? This is why the New Testament is full of this conflict. Because Jews were like, there ain't no way in hell that I'm spending a night with him in the same house. No way. And Paul's like, okay, well then you're not in Christ. Because this is where Christ is, over here, and we're all in it together. You're in the same household. Right? Look down at one of my, one of my sons are in the same household. And you know this if you have kids, like when your kids are fighting with one another, the pain that that is, you're like, you're in the same family. <laughs> and you feel the dissension of that, the, the wrongness of that. But then Paul goes further. You're not just citizens in the same kingdom. You're not just siblings in the same house. You are being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone in whom the whole single structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You're being built into a single entity, a single building, a single new humanity with one another. That's powerful stuff. National identity, family identity, religious identity. Right there. It's all transcended. All of the, the cultural and individual distinctions that we have transcended by the power and the death of Jesus. You would do well to meditate on these images, to take them home and spend time on them. And in them, there is this call for us as people who are in Christ then to cultivate resistance to the division that is trying to climb its way back up. I want to give you just two ways to finish. The first is what I want to call realizing our unity. Not realizing like, realizing like I forgot, I, I realize I forgot my keys today. <laughs> realizing, the de one definition is for realize is to give actual or physical form to something. You realized prophets. <laughs> you gave physical form to it. And I think for us as a church, the call here is that unity has already been accomplished by Jesus. We're not, we don't need to achieve that. We need to realize it. Bring it into physical, actual form in our real communities. This is what we're so bad at. This is where we fall down on the job. Because it's so easy to just go where we want to go and remain apart from the people we want to be apart from. But if we're demonstrating unity to Jesus, unity in Christ, then we transcend that. Then we're fellow citizens. We're brothers and sisters. We're being built together and giving physical form to this in our common life as a, as a church. This is what Paul talks about the rest of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. I urge you then, and this is Paul talking with respect to everything he said in verse chapters 1 to 3 in Ephesians chapter 4. I urge you then to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And many people, I think, think that means to like be good, like to, to not sin. But this is what he defines it as. With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul has three chapters of theology and then his very first sentence on what you should do now 
is to maintain the unity that you've been given in Christ with other Christians. This is a number one priority for the church. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. What do you think it means to grieve the Holy Spirit? It's in the context of a bunch of verses about mutual submission to one another. The Spirit is most grieved when we ignore, resist, fail to realize the unity that Christ has achieved for us. The New Testament is overflowing with this admonition over and over and over. Ephesians 5 is less about marriage than it is about mutual submission and unity in Jesus. Philippians 2, have this mind be not only concerned for your own interests, but the interests of others. Submit to one another. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. This is, this is the whole New Testament. This is what holiness is about. It's about being unified with one another. It, the call here is to cultivate a habit and a mindset of this. Priority of unity with one another. To ask yourself, how can you give, how can you realize the unity you have with other people in your daily life? What steps can you take to proactively bring that unity into the forefront, into practical application, realization in your life? Too often this is left as a sort of a backseat thing. I need to be right about these 450 things, and once I'm right about those, then I'll pursue unity with other people who are also right about those 400 things. And Jesus says, no, priority number one, be unified with other people. Live in the unity that Christ has for you, has achieved by his blood. That's realizing unity. The other one is refusing to allow our distinctions to become divisions. Refusing to allow our distinctions to become divisions. This is the whole discussion in Romans and Corinthians about the weaker and stronger brother thing. That's what it's about. We're not going to go into it now. Go back and read those in the late chapters of Romans, Corinthians 14 and 16. It's Paul's plea to resist division over distinctions. He's not saying get rid of your distinctions. He has learned to live in unity among them. Paul says not everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. What things are beneficial? The things that demonstrate the unity that Christ has achieved for us. This is, one author says it this way. Christians are routinely taught by example and word that it is more important to be right, always in terms of their beloved vessel and tradition, than it is to be Christ-like. In fact, being right licenses you to be mean and indeed requires you to be mean, righteously mean, of course. You must be hard on people who are wrong, especially if they are in positions of Christian leadership. They deserve nothing better. That's the mindset you find in most Christian circles. That's what I've experienced in most circles that I've come into contact with. I told this story to somebody this week. It's an aside. I, I did my studies at Reformed Theological Seminary here. Sorry for the 40% of you that recoil at hearing that, right? <laughs> Jeremy, I know, yeah. Um, and I was there for three years, and while I was there, I was working at Carmel Baptist Church, not a Reformed church. And I constantly was walking around Carmel. People would be like, hey, where are you going to seminary? I'd be like, Reformed. They'd be like, oh. <laughs> how, did, how did you get hired here? And the next, that afternoon, I'd be walking around the halls of RTS, and they'd be like, hey, where do you go to church again? I'd be like, Carmel Baptist Church. <laughs> and they'd be like, are they even reformed? And I'd be like, no. They'd be like, how do you even go to church there? <laughs> Literally, I had people ask me, how do you even go to church there? 
I mean, this is the context we're in. Those are two groups of people that are deeply committed to Jesus and refuse to talk to one another. It's amazing. <laughs> Have you read the Bible? The dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. Humility, submission to others is more important than being right. This is, I just, I'm on a Dallas Willard kick, as you can tell. He said, this is amazing. Anyone who thinks God only blesses what is right has had a very narrow experience and probably does not understand what God has done for them. Put that on your kitchen wall. <laughs> Anyone who thinks God only blesses what is right probably doesn't understand what God has done for them. It's okay to be wrong. Tim Keller had a great article this week. Too many Christians not willing to admit they're wrong. Where are you wrong? Where might you be wrong? Are you willing to say you're wrong? The only thing you need to be right about is the blood of Jesus. Everything else is important, not essential, not division. Even if you are right, ask yourself, how can I set aside my preferences or convictions to accommodate other people? Do you ask yourself that on a regular basis? That's what it means to refuse to allow our distinctions to become divisions. Paul finishes. In him, you also, you, Gentile, you Gentiles, you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Being in Christ, it means cultivating a resistance to division. Because we are being built together into a single dwelling place for the Spirit of God. You can't be a dwelling place for God by yourself. The Spirit of God doesn't dwell in one individual person. He dwells in a people. And being in that person of Christ means also being in that people of Christ, in the unity of the Spirit. And for those in Christ, Paul says, this idea will be a centerpiece and a defining aspect of their lives. Being in Christ resisting, cultivating resistance to division because of what Jesus is doing in us. Let's pray.